finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. This is a podcast where we read things and then we talk about them. Uh, we are currently nearing the end, honestly, of a series on the wicked and divine, or wicked plus divine, by Karen Gillan and Jamie McKelvey and Matthew Wilson and Clayton Cowles and other people here and there. I think those are really the only ones on this particular volume. Because this particular volume is volume six, yes. the Imperial Phase Part Two, which means after this we've got three volumes left, and then we're done. So this came out in 2018 as the compiled volume. The individual issues, which are 29 to 33, all came out in 2017. So I have to say, before we really get into it, I think this is sort of this is one of my favorite volumes i like the way that the action played out and what was revealed in this i thought it was very exciting yeah there's a there's a quite a few reveals there's quite a few like major developments in this one this is a, there's a lot uh shaking out in this particular volume which is a phrase i keep saying for some reason yeah let's just like write like well, we don't we don't really need to recap. We can just go right into Well, the big thing that kicks off this volume or well, the 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 story in this starts off by proceeding directly from a big event in the previous volume, which was that Sakmat found out that she had been left out of the loop as to what hap- exactly happened to Anarchy at the end of Rising Action, and she slaughtered a bunch of Amaterasu's followers and is now in the wind. I think it's kind of a safe bet to say that she was left out because she's kind of like a loose cannon. Well, yeah. She, they can't... I mean, there's a lot of... The previous volume was about trying to get... Wrangle the Pantheon, you know, like... Not necessarily under Ball's control, but under one sort of goal and guiding principle and how hard that is. And she's the least... Oh, she's the most chaotic of the bunch. So she, it would have been impossible to, I think, get her on the same page as everybody else, as witnessed by her actions. So this volume six, issue 29, starts with the Pantheon, the remaining Pantheon. Half of them are looking for Sackman, mm-hmm. and half of them are continuing to work on Anaki's machine. And then there's the, the one outlier, Who's not really invested in either thing. But yeah, you've got Ball, Minerva, and Amaterasu who are like, they really want to be the X-Men. <laughs> and they're, oh, and they're embroiled in a search for Sackmet. And then you have Dionysus, Erder, or Cassandra, and Woden, who are working on this project to try and figure out what the machine that Anarchy had Woden make to sacrifice Minerva does. When their plan involves making this like super gig to harness the hive mind that Dionysus's powers make. And then you have Woden who's like kind of providing support to the X-Men team. And then you have Persephone who's not really interested in either thing. She's ostensibly helping Ball and the crew, but she doesn't really care as evidenced by what happens at the very end of this issue. And I think it's pretty evident because a lot of the issues she's depicted as laying in bed wearing her... Uh... Sweatpants. So, mm-hmm. 
that's clear sign to anyone that you don't care. You know, you put on your sweatpants and you hang out in your room all day. Well, yeah, I mean, that is that's pretty much like universal imagery for not caring. Uh, she sleeps with a person who is like a Lucifer cosplayer, which draws a direct parallel between her and known shitty guy, Woden. Yeah, well, I think it's pretty safe to say that she's pretty shitty. I don't know if she's acting shitty or she, in fact, is just shitty. Yeah. It's hard to tell. We do get an interesting flashback to 2013 to one of, like, to Ball's first gig, which Lara is apparently at. And it's, like, in a warehouse, and he is in, like, the most subdued outfit we've ever seen him in. He's wearing, like, he's wearing, like, just, like, trousers and a tank top. Now, was Ball the first to come? I think he's... And I was... Last night, I was editing our previous Wicked the Divine episode. We mentioned in that that he says something that seems to heavily imply, if not outright state, that he's the first one. He's had the longest relationship with Anaki. He's been... Yeah, that makes sense. Because he, in the previous volume, he tells Minerva that he's the first to go. Yeah, so it seems like what happened with him was he was awoken first, he was the only one, then for some reason was like immediately attacked by the darkness. He got scared because he wasn't used to being a god, I guess, and the darkness killed his father. And then he's doing this show to introduce himself and to also introduce Sakmet, who is previously, we we know her backstory of how she became a member of the Pantheon, and she's also there at this nightclub. We sort of know, yeah, we have very few specifics about her backstory. She's some kind of bad, implied, abusive relationship with her father. Yeah, and, and she's that's a street, really all we know. Well, we know that she's a teenager who grew up, who grew up, or at some point was living on the street. Yeah, she was a runaway, but that's all we get. So, because her flashback, her like focus issue. Was like mostly about what she was doing at the moment. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I think she's the kind of person, she's not superficial, but I think she, based on her, how the experiences in her past life and her nature of being like a cat inspired God, she really only lives for the future. Or the moment. Or the moment. Yeah. I think that's why she was very happy when they were having. When all of the female gods were involved together and there was that weird, unfortunate Shintu that Amaratsu was doing and all of the... Which, this volume makes it clear that she has not completely abandoned that real, totally boneheaded enterprise. Yes, of course not. Yeah, and well, Amaratsu shows up and she drags Laura off to witness Ball and Minerva having like a literally an X-Men training sequence where they're standing in a big empty room shooting robots and Minerva is like struggling with her powers and then so first she's doing the um the thing she did to the what's what was her name Carrie yes where she shoots her with like a blast of air she's like doing that to the robot and just like exploding it's like you're not exploding but like crushing its body with that and Ball's like, that's not going to work. And he, he demonstrates what he wants her to do, which is he shoots lightning directly at its head. And then she blows, like, shoots one of the robots in the head. And the way she does it is with the finger snap and finger gun point, which we've seen a character who did that a lot. Yes. And that's, that's some, some real foreshadowing. I was going to say, that's what they call foreshadowing. And then there's a point where 
we kind of get a little bit more information about the Morgan and what kind of mental state she's in. And it's a pretty dark place. And she's pretty much still obsessed with Baphomet. And she's kind of holding him. Not prisoner, but they're kind of staying in the underground. Well, she's like isolating him from right. her friends. Because uh, Cassandra, Dionysus, and Persephone go basically to ask her for help. Or to ask her if she if Sakhmet's been in the underground or for help finding her or whatever. And she's like wearing like a full-on supervillain outfit. Yes. I think it's also the first time that Erdur Cassandra has seen Morgan since the battle at Valhalla. Uh, well, there was the vote, the anarchy or research vote. But other than that, I think you're right. Yeah, and she is like, yeah, Baphomet, whatever. He doesn't want to talk to you. I won't let him talk to you. And then Dionysus sits down in the darkness after everybody leaves and he's like going to stay there until he gets to talk to his friend. Right, because we know from previous issues that they have this mutual appreciation yeah. of each other. And they're really laying on that Dionysus is a good guy. Yes. For totally innocent reasons. Yes, of course, of course. Uh, yeah, and then... So he stays while the others leave because he's going to try to wait out the Morgan so that he can see Ball and talk to him. Um, I'm sorry. Baphomet. Yeah, we get another interaction between Cassandra and Persephone, which is driving home this thing that we talked about in the previous volume where it's like, Cassandra and Laura are friends. It does not seem like Cassandra or Erdur particularly likes Persephone. She also sort of drops the bombshell, not the bombshell, but, like, the revelation that, like, her and Sackman were basically dating. Well, also get the impression, too, that they're sort of setting up this um, kind of awkward situation where it's kind of clear that Cassandra has feelings for Lara, but not specifically for, for Persephone. Possibly. We get some more Persephone partying, and that basically ends with her going back to her weird like sewer apartment <laughs> in the underground where Sackman is waiting right not to kill her just hanging out yeah because i guess she's mm-hmm. she's kind of like Sackman is kind of like her base feelings she's kind of conflicted yeah she's bored and she likes persephone but she doesn't really process the sort of higher feeling of how she feels betrayed by persephone yeah well and like when I was describing the setup for this volume. I specifically used the term, I specifically said Sacramento was in the wind because I didn't want to use on the run because that implied too much, like, direct action. Like, I don't think she cares. I don't think she's been running from them. I think she just doesn't want to be around those people right now. And it doesn't matter to her that they're mad at her or, you know, scared of her or whatever. I think so, too, because when she shows up, she's kind of like, I'm bored. Let's be less bored. Yeah. And also the title card says Netflix and Kill. Yeah. Uh, and that's the, that's the end of the of issue 29. But I mean, it's not, there's not a lot going on, but it's setting up a lot of what happens. Because like, we know from previous compiled volumes that the action is in the back end. It's in the yeah. later issues. So the, the beginning issues usually set up a long you know, pay off for what's going to happen very quickly in the last two or three issues. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
So then issue 30 starts, and this is sort of more about Woden and about his machine. Yeah, he's like totally overhauled Valhalla, and now it has the same aesthetic overall that like the machine has, and specifically that uh, beeping tube that we're gonna find that we're gonna find out what that is sort of by the end of this volume. And so yeah, so he's working on modifying the machine and modifying Valhalla and the Valkyries and all this stuff to set up for this big gig where they're gonna harness. Uh, Dionysus's power of, of his hive mind to I just don't fully understand how this is I guess it's like they're basically going to turn the crowd into like a supercomputer to try and figure out what the the machine does that's what I think or to see if they can use the crowd to turn the machine on and that'll help them see what it does I think so because there's a lot of specific talk about how many people they need yeah but I think my favorite part, which I guess sets up a little bit about figuring out what's going on, is there's a scene where Woden takes all these accessories and quotation marks that he created for the Pantheon gods, and he says he's going to take them into the back and overhaul them. And then he sort of just puts them on a table and just like, you know, waits around and doesn't really do anything until there's enough time Pass to make it look like he did something, and then he takes them back out. I think that seems great. One, it's very funny. It's like a silent sequence where he just puts them on the table, and then he like whistles, <laughs> like it's like a war balloon where it's just, it's like a war balloon where it's just um, music notes. But it's, so it's what they want him to do specifically in that part is it's the it's the crew that's hunting Sakmet, and they want him to take their things that he their like artifacts or whatever that he's made for them, and put, like, surveillance capabilities in them so they can use it when they're tracking Zachman. And so it's like, on one, he doesn't need to do upgrade them because they definitely all are already equipped for surveillance. Right, so that means he's... So he and Anaki have probably been watching the Pantheon from the very beginning. Well, we know for a fact that he... Because what he's given is, I think, the, the pendant that lets... Amaterasu used Starlight, Ball's necklace, and Minerva's goggles. And we know that he's got, he gave, I don't know if it was the pen, no, it's like a ring or something. But he had previously given Amaterasu an item that he was using to surveil her. And we know that the owl was equipped to help right. him and Anarchy spy on Minerva. Or on whoever was around Minerva, at least. The other reason that this is important will be revealed later. Right. But I think it's pretty clear that Woden may not be the mechanical genius that he claims to be because he didn't know what he was building. Well, he says that he was given, he was like only given pieces. Well, yeah, no, his thing doesn't totally hold up to scrutiny because it's the kind of excuse you would make if you were working on something with another person. Whereas like you were only given part of the machine and you just built your part and put it together. So, he did ultimately assemble the entire machine, so he should know how it works. But it's interesting because this is kind of also another thing that kind of bothers me a lot about modern things. That Minerva has become, like, the computer genius because, like, she's the youngest one now. So, she's the one who's, like, monitoring the system that's doing the surveillance and she's, like doing like all kinds of like hacking things to in the computer yeah i think that has less to do with her being the computer expert and more to do with 
that if they give her that job, then she doesn't have to be in the field because she's a child. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Also, while all this is happening, we get this long, harrowing sequence of Dionysus waiting in the darkness for Baphomet, and he's accosted by all of, all three of the Morrigan's, uh, personas. And so, like, first he just gets, like, I think it's, he gets attacked by the, the, the crows and yelled at by Babd. And before that, I guess in the, he had met the Morrigan in the previous issue and she just like told him off and said he wasn't going to be able to talk to him. And then what, uh, what is her name? What the bald one? Gentle Annie. Yeah. She shows up and is like, you know, I'm sorry. Like it, I wish that the other ones didn't come out so much and that they weren't so angry. Like, and then she's also implies like, hey, like, you're probably not, I'm going to let you see Baphomet, but you that means you're probably not going to see me again anytime soon. I think it's also showing the sort of how the Morgan is sort of devolving into like just the one entity, the angry, vengeful entity that really wants to spite people. Yeah, it's like how much difference is there between the black haired Morgan and Babbed at this point? Not really that much. And then it's like, Annie's supposed to be the the mitigating factor, and then she has been... I mean, I guess the way it's supposed to work, right, is that Annie and Babd are two extremes and the Morgan is in the middle. But much like our current political system, uh, the center has been pulled very far to the right, leaving the left almost entirely powerless. Yeah, and despite the fact that it's hurting Dionysus to be... One, away from his hive mind, and two, to be in that dark, un, you know, non-positive space, he's staying there because he really wants to help Baphomet. Yeah, it's also kind of like a hero's journey thing. Like, he's doing like a, you know, Luke in the cave. Like, he's sitting in the darkness and being accosted by angry spirits uh, in this quest for knowledge. But then his, his the knowledge he's after is in greater spiritual knowledge. It's just, is my friend okay? Which I think is very, it's pretty nice. And then, how do you want to do it? I mean, we could, we'll just finish out the Dionysus part. So Baphomet shows up and they have a conversation. And Baphomet's like joking around and trying to play things off. And he's blaming himself. And it becomes like very clear that this is like an abusive relationship. He admits to being afraid of her. We get a flashback where he's told that he's going to die in two years. And he freaks out. I think... A lot of what, and this is kind of like a really shitty thing to do in a depiction of an abusive relationship, but Baphomet kind of feels like he deserves that because of his reaction that he had when he found out that she had Casey or whatever her name was. I forget what her... Chelsea or something like that. She convinced Annika to make him into a god without his permission. And his reaction to that was very um, angry. And he feels that kind of like what's happening to him about that is partly his fault, which I think is a really shitty thing to do to someone who's being held in an abusive relationship. Yeah, but I don't think it's unrealistic. I mean, that happens. People do act like that. Like, that's one of the, the problems... With abusive relationships is, like, it's not just the physical part. It's, like, the mental manipulation that, like... I mean, we, we this is a weirdly a thing that we've talked about a bunch on the podcast. Because this came up during the Swamp Thing discussion. 
with uh, I can't remember her name. Oh but yeah, the reporter. The reporter. That that plot point. Yeah. Um. And it's like this. And we also talked about it a little bit with the um. Also in the Swamp Thing one with um. The Flying Man. Was that what it was called? The the part with. Anton Arcane, where he's, like, fucking up the world. It's, like, this idea that, like, in in an abusive relationship, the abuser kind of warps reality around them. And then, like, the Morrigan, again, is, like, a person who literally can warp reality around them and has control over this underworld. And it becomes clear, like, through this conversation that as much as, like, Batman is presented as, like, the Morrigan's king and the king of the underworld, the, like, important part is the Morrigan's king. Like, he is not... An equal in power to her, I don't think. Well, yeah, I think that, like, because she said, refers to him as mine, and she's very possessive of his time and who gets in controlling. And she's still very upset about Persephone's relationship with Baphomet. And I think that shows up later on. Well, she sure goes to, while Dionysus and Baphomet are having their conversation, she goes to Laura's apartment and, like, sort of threatens her. And while they're talking, Dionysus keeps bringing up, like, Cassandra. Like, and he's bringing her up in this idea of, like, she's, like, the voice of reason and she cuts through the bullshit. And, like, if she was here, she would, like, show you how unreasonable you are. And Baphomet's like, you keep bringing her up. Like, is there something going on there? And kind of teases him about maybe being in love with her. Uh, which, like, Dionysus, I don't think he doesn't really deny it. But he's just like, that's not important. Like, that's not what we're talking about. Uh, and then while all of that is happening, the the other big thing, that not big thing, the other thing that happens in this issue is uh, they think that the the uh, the X-Men crew think they've found Sackmet and they accidentally just bust through the window of a Sackmet cosplayer. Yeah, and then she's kind of like, can I get your autograph to Ball? And he's like, sure. Yeah. It's a very strange issue. Mm-hmm. Baphomet refers to Erger and the Norns as a closed polyamorous relationship. I think this becomes more important in the next issue where they, I guess it's confronted that Dionysus has what he considers to be feelings for Cassandra. Yeah, we'll talk about it because they have just a straight up conversation about it. The last thing that happens in this issue is we get a panel of Persephone kissing Zachman and crying, uh, foreshadowing what she's about to do in the next issue. Yeah. So issue 31, well, first off, we get a great Woden cover. He's got like a, like a, I mean, he's doing like a supervillain pose. He's got the tented fingers. He's got like a, like jacket with tails version of his Tron suit, uh, which is cool. It looks cool. For you're driving home that he is like fully a supervillain, and then uh, Sagma goes off for a walk, and well, we didn't reveal that that Persephone's apartment is in the basement of the British Museum. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. It is. That's that's that is important. And then so Sagma decides she's going to go for a a walk there, and and in doing so. I guess at that time, Persephone calls Ball? Yeah, well, I think we actually see her with the call, so we can talk about that. Uh, But it immediately cuts to uh, the thing that we were talking about, like, just a second ago, 
because uh, it's Woden, Dionysus, and Cassandra having this, like, running through, like, what they're going to do with this gig. And Dionysus is, like, really out of it, and he's like, you know, I'm going to be good, it's fine, like, I- I'm not, d- I'm doing this to, like, I'm good. And he walks off, and Cassandra's like, I don't know why he does this. And one's like, yeah, I mean, I do. Like, again, hinting at the, like, that he's in love with her, or he has feelings for her. And then, so she goes off to talk to him about it. I think it's a combination of him having these feelings, because he's, like, identified as asexual. Yeah, well, And then he has these feelings, but then also he's not feeling well himself. He's away from his hive mind, which sort of keeps him bolstered. So he's, like, already at low energy, and he's kind of, like, emotionally strained from his, like, encounters with the variations of the Morrigan. So he's already, like, in, like, a sort of delicate state to begin with, because you can tell he, like, they're depicting him, and you can see he's not healthy-looking. He rings around his eyes. His very skin is not a good color. He's very sort of slow-moving, and usually, like, Dionysus is, like, upbeat and positive, and he has a lot of energy, and he's kind of, like, feeding off the sort of good vibes that he's getting from his followers, and you can tell that stardoms take, like, an impact on him. Like, yeah. Woden makes it worse. This mood, Woden is, like, emotionally draining. Yeah, well, I think it's important to note that uh, visually, through this whole conversation, we can see his actual eyes. Like, we've established before that, like, when he's using his powers and he's looked into the hive mind, his eyes are, like, completely black. And the couple times where they've tried to show us, like, oh, like, this dude is not, like, as well as he's letting on has been times where they've briefly, briefly drawn him with his actual, like, bloodshot eyes. And that's only ever been for, like, a panel or two. This is like three pages of a whole of two conversations where you can just fully see his eyes. So he's clearly like at the end of his rope. But then Cassandra goes off and like asks him a hypothetical question. Specifically, they establish that he's he is asexual but not aromantic. Uh, and then she asks him like how he would deal with having feelings for someone. And he basically gives her this conversation where it's like, you know, it's not the end of the world. Like he's talking about himself. Probably she's hearing him talking about her and Laura, I would imagine. And But he gives her this speech where it's like, you know, like, it's okay to have feelings for your friend. And it's like, we don't need to define feelings so rigidly. And, like, the problem becomes when you, like, let your, these, these feelings or this longing or whatever, like, justify you doing shitty stuff. Right. Uh, and he's like, as long as you don't do that, then it's, like, fine. And, like... That's the that's the speech he gives her. And then he tells her, he assures her that, like, his motivation is not selfish. Like, he's, he says, there's no way I could stand making this many people unhappy. Yeah, so I think he decides, despite, I mean, it, he may feel better after the conversation with Cassandra. Because I think their relationship, like, it's very clear. His feelings for her don't seem to be sexual feelings. They seem to just be sort of emotional feelings. Mm-hmm. And I think once he connects with her, like on an honest level, and then he decides, he commits to doing the right thing, which is to continue with the concert. It cuts to him going to the concert, and then he's once again depicted in his bright colors, his sort of neon persona with the, you know his aura around him. And he... 
starts to energize the hive mind. And then that's like the start of trying to get the machine to work. Yeah, I also think like at the end of that conversation, he sort of reveals that he's a much more complex person than people are willing to give him credit for. The idea is like he essentially admits, at least to like us as the reader, that like he does have romantic feelings for her. But he's not letting them control him. He's not, like, being consumed by unrealized yearning. He's, like, acknowledged these feelings and he's processing them. And he's not letting it, like, affect him. And then, of course, in true Wicked and Divine storytelling, right when the hive mind is kicking up and Cassandra and the Norns realize that it's working... Al pops Woden with his gun, and we realize that now he's doing a double cross. Yeah. Also, right before the concert happens, we get the sequence where Laura is sitting on her, or laying on her bed in her sweatpants. Uh, she's out of cigarettes, and so she decides to cause problems on purpose. Yes. And calls Ball and t- tips him off that Sachmet is at the museum. And then, yeah, so then we get the concert. Everything seems to be going well. The machine's powering up with rainbow energy. Uh, there's a big dome over Valhalla. I don't know if that's supposed to be there. And then you see, like, Dionysus, and he's smiling, and he's... And then he realizes something's not right. Yeah, so, like, Woden knocks out the Erder and the Norns, and then he uses, like, a sci-fi turntable to hack into Dionysus's brain and, like, basically cut him... Um, cut him off from the, the hive mind and usurp it. And he starts, like, bleeding out of his nose and passes out, and Woden appears to be victorious. And uh, then it's like, wait, because we got to go back to this other scene. And then Amaratsu shows up at the museum and tries <laughs> to have a heart-to-heart. Yeah, but she's, she does the very Amaterasu thing where she's like, isn't imperialism cool? Isn't it cool that they stole all these artifacts and have Our them in the museum? Our dads both had, like, this place. But, yeah, she's like, yeah, isn't it great that, like, the the British are safekeeping these artifacts? Like, it's like, again, her girl characters that she's an imperialist. I mean, she's also, you know, the, Jap- the, the symbol of the imperial Japan is the rising sun, right? And she's the sun god. She appears in uh, the red circle, like on the flag of Imperial Japan and then defends imperialism and gets in a fight with Sackman and gets her throat torn out. But then she also... Laser eyes a bunch of priceless Egyptian artifacts as she's dying. But not only that, she tries to make a connection with Sackman about their fathers without realizing that her relationship with her father is considerably different than Sackman's relationship with her father. And I think that kind of, like, well, the, and the specific, misstep kind of hastens her demise. Well, the specific line that sets Sackman off is that she says, "We're family." I guess we're all family now. And Sackman's like, "We are," and her claws are already out, and she rips her throat out. And then there's a giant one page of Amaratsu with her throat ripped out, and she's in a giant circle of blood. And there's like and splatter she- coming off of it that makes it look like that are like the rays of the sun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's that's the end of the issue, and Amaterasu appears to be uh, dead. Well, I don't know how she's going to survive with that shooting. Well, she's for... a god. I don't know. But yeah. For, uh, and then the next issue, we get a cool Dionysus cover. He's got a little... He's got the fucking Watchmen smiley face pin <laughs> on his shirt. That's definitely not foreshadowing, right? 
We don't. Nothing bad happened to the guy who had that pin in Watchmen, right? No. Oh, it's <laughs> such a great symbol. And so Sackman shows up back in Laura's apartment. And is like, "Hey, I killed Amaterasu," and Laura's like, "Hmm." <laughs> <laughs> so Woden is gloating over having usurped the hive mind. He yells, "Who's got two thumbs and thirteen Asian girlfriends?" This shithead and points at himself. <laughs> but then Dionysus has this sort of resurgence, and he makes these uh, glow stick nunchucks. Yes. <laughs> and he decides he's going to fight Woden. Yeah. Uh, and I love this sort of, the way that they depict him where he's like, he's very physical. You know, he's jumping and kicking and... Yeah, he leaps over the crowd. Uh, importantly, he says, uh, I can save everyone, which is not a sentiment that the rest of the ethos of this book supports. Uh, yeah, so we get... Uh, Mora, Laura, and Sack met together. She reveals that she uh, ratted her out to Ball and the homies. And then they show up. Yeah, Minerva's Al flies into the room. While, I guess they're having this conversation where Sackmet is not, is facing... Away from the door. Away from the door. And Lars, they're facing together, talking on the bed. And Ball shows up and he's got like a big thunderbolt and he's about to... Yeah, she says, would you have ever told me the ball's behind me? <laughs> Obviously not. Uh, and then we get this, like, sequence of um, Dionysus one. desperately trying to fight his way through the crowd, which is being controlled by Woden. And, like, the whole thing is rendered where the crowd is, like, neon green silhouettes, like, Woden colors. And he is, like, wreathed in neon, like, pink and yellow light. And he's, like, trying not to hurt people because they're being mind-controlled. He makes it to the stage, but then he's swarmed by the Valkyries, and all his powers drop out for a second. And the whole... The whole thing is told, like, in the, like, reoccurring one, two, three, four panel sequence with the numbers and the action for at least three pages. Yeah. But he, uh, he doesn't make it. He gets through the Valkyries... But he's on his, like, hands and knees when his powers give out as he's crawling towards Woden's evil DJ booth. And he just flops on the floor, dead. Uh, and Woden is gloating over him like a supervillain when Cassandra and the Nords get up. And she sa- they say, you dumb, you dumb fuck. I'm a fucking critic. <laughs> Going back to the idea that, like, he was, you know, her... God powers don't work on her. And Woden was so fucking arrogant that he assumed he could have figured it out how to make them work on her and use that against her. Well, that's one of the reasons, too, I think, that you start to see that, I guess, I don't know how to say it without revealing a lot about what's going on. We'll talk about it. When we get to the reveal, we can go back and talk about this again. Okay, yes. Just make sure you remember what you were going to say. And then... I guess Cassandra tries to call Persephone, and Persephone doesn't pick up. Because there's a superhero fight happening in her room. But I think Cassandra just assumes that Persephone's being a bitch and won't pick up. But then then it cuts to the scene where you can see Ball and Minerva and Persephone are all fighting with Sackman. Oh, I was going to say, when when Urger wakes up and turns on Woden, he teleports away, and they are like, we gotta get Dionysus to the hospital. Yeah, because he's kind of like in a coma almost yeah uh yeah so big superhero fight in laura's apartment and then in another telling part 
Minerva is texting the Morgan, asking her to come and help. And in the beginning, she says, yeah, sure, we will. And then he, Minerva says, okay, we're at Persephone's apartment. And then the Morgan's like, fuck it. And she doesn't want to go anywhere. Well, yeah. Well, the thing is, Sacramento is winning. She's kicking balls ass. And Persephone tries to use her powers on her. And she's too powerful. Or maybe they just don't work on the gods. I don't know. They also don't work on the darkness. So, like, what the fuck is the point of Persephone's powers? Uh, but... I like, too, that Sackman is sort of portrayed almost, like, as a boxer. Like, as a female boxer. She's wearing, like, a tight, cropped, like, mm-hmm. tank shirt. And she's got this thick jewelry. And then her hands are red. And then she has her claws. And she has these high-waisted sort of short pants skirt thing on that she's wearing. And she's just, like, doing battle... Yeah. Uh, and she confronts Persephone and she says, predator or prey, destroyer, choose. And then Persephone just starts clicking and her tendrils coming out. Yeah, well, she shoots two of them at Sackman's head and Sackman just breaks them with her hands. And then she goes to kill Persephone and the top of her head gets, like, the top of Sackman's head gets blown off. And we see Minerva standing over her with the finger gun pointing. Now, we don't see what it looks like when the top of her head gets blown off. Because we're seeing her from, like, just like her arms. And then we see her fall and her head is separated. So we don't see the, like, what effect or element or whatever Minerva used to kill her. Which I think, which is important for a reveal later. Yeah, and then it cuts. I mean, you realize that Sackman is dead. And then it cuts to... Persephone and Cassandra, and they're having a conversation, and it looks like they're having a conversation. It's in, in the room with the with the machine. In the machine. And Persephone's basically like, "You did all of this shit to try and learn about the machine, and you didn't learn anything." And now Dionysus, we find out, is is brain dead in the hospital, and Woden is gone, and they everybody trusts them even less than they did before, presumably. And part of the problem thing with the gig was they're going to try to rebuild their public image, and that has backfired. And they start to they start fighting with the stupid phallic shaped beeping machine. And as they're throwing it about and fighting, the beeping gets louder, and then they realize that it's telling them it's like doing a hot cold thing. Yeah. Uh, but also while they're fighting, so we in the previous volume there was that part. Where uh, Cassandra and Laura have this text conversation where Cassandra's like, how many people are you going to kill or are you going to let die? Like, what kind of person would do that? And Laura's response is, no person. And when we were talking about in the previous volume, we were, I was saying that it's like, oh, like Persephone's like essentially dead. Like she's a dead person walking around. And this and that's what that was about but here she presents the argument where it's like we're gods and we're not people and like she's arguing that it's a mistake to like hold themselves to the standards of a a person and like a person's morality and cassandra won't let go of that and then it's when they start fighting with the machine with the beeping thing and they find a secret room in valhalla and that's the end of the issue and it's kind of like cassandra's like whoa woden actually has a secret lair and then they hey, they hear a sound that says, hey, over here. And it's like Woden's uh, thought, like word balloons, but instead of green, it's pink. Yeah. 
and we see so what we thought was the Valkyrie Golem. Okay, so way back there's a Woden's like um, point of view issue from that that volume where McKelvey wasn't where they were had like the guest artists mm-hmm. that ended with this page of Woden talking to someone who was wearing a similar helmet to him, but it had like winged horns coming off of it. And we thought that the reveal of what that person was, was the um, the Valkyrie Golem mech thing that he uses in Rising Action. But it's clear that it's actually this person who is chained up in his secret lair science dungeon. Yes, and he has the, his helmet is like almost a nod to like Loki. Yeah, or... Um, Space or Science Ninja Team Gachamon, aka Battle of the Planets or G Force. So they have a conversation with this entity, this other Woden. It looks like yeah. that's what the like a Woden that's being held captive. Yeah, and then the real Woden shows up with his helmet off, and it's dun, dun, dun. David Blake. David Blake, which is really interesting because I was not really interesting. This is me overselling it. But I, I mentioned I was editing the previous Wicked Divine episode last night. There's a part where we're talking about Woden. And you said to me, don't you think Woden makes more sense when you think about him as a teenager and not a grown man who's just a pervert? <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> Wrong. He is a grown man that's just a pervert. <laughs> He's a middle-aged dude. What a creep. Yeah. And I think it's kind of, it's extra kind of insulting to Cassandra because she relied on him, David. She was <laughs> friends with David and enemies with Woden. And it was the same guy both times. What a fucking dickhead. And so he shows up and he's, and they're like, who are you? And trying to, who the hell are you? That's what they asked the guy in the chair. And then Woden, David Blake shows up and he says, he's John Blake. I know you recognize me. And then traps them in the cage with him. So the captive is his son John. So I was wrong because I thought that Woden was David's son. The implication that we... or I don't even know it was an implication. We're basically told that Woden was John Blake and that that David Blake was like keeping his distance from him. Yes. But it's the other way around. Well, it's Woden is David Blake and John Blake is a prisoner. But I was right in one circumstance. Oh, we'll get to that. Yes. Yeah, you totally called it. (laughs) Yeah, so... But just before we get to that, I think they want you to think that David is Woden and his son is Loki. That's definitely the implication because that's sort of how it works. Yes, Uh, but I think that's not... But then you get a flashback where you see David's son who's like troubled, which is implied in the other, in the previous issues... And he is with his therapist, and he's talking to his therapist, and you realize that his therapist is actually Anaki, who's undercover. Well, yeah, importantly, I, th- I I don't actually know if that's true. Because importantly, she's not wearing a mask. Yes. She's just, like, dressed like a normal old, old lady. Yes. Uh, yeah, so they're having, like, a conversation in 2013, and she's basically like, yeah, you're not right for it. And then she calls, presumably, David, and tells him that. But then she appears in the Anaki garb with the mask in their yard, like basically every other uh, time she's awoken a god. I got the impression that David approached Anaki and said, I think my son is one of the pantheon. 
and Anaki agreed to evaluate him and yeah. then lied to David saying that he wasn't part of the Pantheon and then came to his house and transformed him. Possibly. Or yes. I have another theory which we will discuss at the end of this episode, under this vo- at the end of this issue. But yeah, so she awakens him and she says, I missed you, Mimir. Mimir? How do you say that? Mimir? Mimir? I thought it was Mimir, but I totally nailed it because I said that. So. Yeah, so for people who don't know, uh, Mimir or Mimir <laughs> is a, um, a giant. Uh, he's a giant that Woden defeated. And then he carries around his head, which acts as like an oracle. Right. But he also has a talent for crafting weapons, mm-hmm. which I think is what is implied here. Because it's sort of his talent for crafting weapons is manifested as a talent for building things. Well, yeah. So she, in the conversation he's having with the unmasked Anarchy, she says like, um... There are those who bend and there are those who break. Which are you? And he insists that he's the one who builds. And she's like, that's not like an acceptable answer. And he's like, I don't care. I don't care if that's an acceptable answer. That's my answer. So he goes back into the house after his transformation and he talks to his father. He's very excited. And then he pulls out a ceremonial dagger. (laughs) (laughs) And it cuts to black. Yeah. And he wakes up presumably uh, restrained like he is in the dungeon and... Uh, David Blake is in the Woden suit and he puts the helmet on him and he says, I'll never let her take you. You're my boy. So he is not Woden and he is not one of the Pantheon. So he is a pretender. David? Yes. And Anakin knows it the whole time. Yeah. So that's what she's talking about when she's like, we were speculating that the thing she was holding over him was that he wasn't the god he says he was. Or that maybe she was just holding his human identity over him. It turns out that she's holding the fact that he is... Uh, David Blake mega creep over his head the whole time. And that's what she's using to manipulate him and his son. Is that she's, she's letting him live out his fantasy of being part of the recurrence. Uh, and in exchange, he has to help her control his son to do and make the things that she wants him to make. So that's what I was talking about. Or that's what we were talking about with the, um, when he pretends to, to upgrade the, the tech. Yeah. Part of it is he doesn't need to do that because they already have cameras in them because he's a mega creep. And part of it is I don't he can't do it. I don't think he can do it on his own. He needs his son to do it. Well, yeah, because we realize that his son has been in that room building things for the Pantheon. And tellingly here, he uh, threatens them with a regular ass gun. Yeah. Just like a normal gun. And he says like the most fucking shitty thing. Because Cassandra's, like, calling him out for being, like, a monster. And he says, he took, he's talking about his son. He says, he took the best years of my life. The second best. The early failing years. Anakin made me the offer and it seemed fair. He stole my life, so I stole his. Also, I think at some point in this, we, we get the confirmation that his mom is dead. Well, I think that's implied. Yeah, but before when he was in the, um, I believe in the interview, in the magazine issue, he says, like... His parents are around. He just doesn't talk to them. And then this, I think, confirms that it's just his dad who's around. And Well, that interview was obviously David Blake, which means all the shit he was saying about his face being scarred and being like Dr. Doom was just him being a nerdy liar. That he's like, he he is like fashioned himself as this Dr. Doom figure, but he's, he's not. Well, yeah, I think the whole thing you realize is a persona. Yeah. 
So then what happens to Woden? Where does he end up? He leaves at some point. Well, so he's he's going to, like, cut through the James Bond villain bullshit and just kill Laura and Cassandra. And his son intervenes and is basically like, I know how the machine works and all this stuff. And if you kill him, I'm just never going to tell you. So he just leaves him in the cage. So he just leaves him in the cage and he walks off to just, I don't know, probably do cocaine. (laughs) And then Laura and Cassandra have a heart-to-heart and, well, Persephone and Laura and Cassandra have a heart-to-heart. And then as they're having a conversation, Cassandra calls Persephone, Persephone, and that is sort of like a turning point where they come to sort of an emotional understanding. And she reveals that a lot of what's going on with her is like sort of survivor's guilt. Right. She blames herself for anarchy killing her parents because she they died in the process of her getting her wish, which was to be part of their occurrence. Also, importantly, we get a huge, like, her and Woden become, like, huge reflections of each other at right. this point. Like, we realize that, like, essentially she and David Blake had the same motivation. And he destroyed his family intentionally to get it. And she feels like she did the same thing, even though she didn't. But I think in the most twisted part of the story is the next part where John was like, help me get out of this chair. And then they unlatch where they think he's being held in the chair by his neck and they take off his head and there's no body. It's just, it's like a robot body. And then this is like the part that really sealed that he's Mimir. Yeah, because he is just a head. Where is his head? Is his, is it John's Identity in that robot head, or is John's head someplace else? I think his head is in the the robot head. Because I will, we'll get to it in a second. I thought you were going to say the most twisted part was when they're having their heart to heart and Laura tries to ruin it by going in to kiss Cassandra. And she's like, no, what? No, stop it. You're doing that thing again. Like, you're being the destroyer. The idea that, like, part of being the destroyer is that she is this, like, force of, like, entropy, but part of being the destroyer is that she's, like, the bad friend who drops, like, drama bombs into the middle of the friend group constantly by, like, trying to hook up with people and just being, like, weird and chaotic. Yeah. Well, I think, too, that it's pretty clear that Cassandra is not... Um, she's not interested in casual sex or casual hookups. Yeah, I think that's, like, part of the thing where she has that conversation with Dionysus in the previous one where she's, like... I think wondering if perhaps she's also asexual. And I think it's just that she's, like, you know, got more, like, a like compared to the other people around her, she has, like, a more... Um, she's less hedonistic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, she's surrounded by, like, Sackman and Persephone and all these people are constantly boning down. And it's like, I could see how you would look at that and be like, is it me? Is something wrong with me? But I think... When she, when they take the head off of the John robot, it clicks in my head very clearly that the heads are very important to whatever Anaki was well, doing. The next page, and then you turn to the next page, and then bam, you see it right there. Yeah. Well, also, I think the important thing to being like that he is the head is when he's the specific phrase he uses when he's instructing them on how to release him. He says. The best release is at the neck. So, like, implying that, like, he is being constrained not just by the chair, but by being attached to the presumably fake body, or maybe it's his own. 
I, I'm assuming what happens with the ceremonial dagger is his dad kills him trying to get the Prometheus thing. And then when he realizes it doesn't work, they just, like, cut his head off and preserve it. Yeah, but I think it, it... Like, let's talk about what happens in the next couple of pages, and then I'll tell you why I think that it's important. Yeah, so we cut to the top half of Sackmet's head, and... Minerva picks it up and she's upset and she's like, this was like a waste. And someone from off screen, well, she says like she should have let her kill the destroyer. The choices are impossible. And someone from off screen is like, yeah, like it was probably easier when you were working with Anarchy, right? Like she was like a steady hand and experienced. And she's like, I don't work with Anarchy. I am Anarchy. And then step voice says, oh, I get it. Cut to the next page. And I thus the last page of this volume and we see, like, this weird altar with four spaces, and in those spaces are the seemingly still alive and it, uh, severed heads of Lucifer, Anana, and Tara. Yeah, and I think it's important to note that when she picks up Sackman's head, it's cut off at the mouth. So yeah. it's not a full head. Which means that when Anarchy was doing her thing with the she finger She wasn't gun, destroying She was teleporting head. them. Yes. Uh, and that's per- when you realize, like, Anarchy needed four heads to put in that altar to stop the darkness and that whatever they did with John and now he is only a head he cannot fulfill whatever thing that Sackman that Anaki needs so I don't know if they need four specific heads or they need four god they need four godheads but yeah. are they specific gods I think it's just four godheads cuz I think she was trying to get Sackman's head as the last one so what does she mean she is Anaki? She has taken over Anaki's entity? Or she was already a manifestation of Anaki? I think that the Anaki that we know was just some old lady she was puppeting. I think when she didn't have the mask and she was the therapist talking... Like, that was just... That's just what she is. When she has the mask on, she's being controlled by Minerva, who is Anaki. I think. I don't know. I mean, but that's my theory, at least. But what the fuck was she doing with the machine? Maybe, uh, oh, so that, oh, so that's, I actually do have a theory about the machine. So when they're taking his head, Mirror's head off, Laura asks him, what does the machine actually do then? And he says, oh, that's a weird thing. Absolutely nothing. I think the machine was just designed to take Minerva off the board. So she didn't have to worry about dealing with her little baby kid body and could just act fully as the Anarchy old lady body. But that would explain why Anarchy can stay alive so long is because she takes the form of a younger person. Yeah. So she herself is not subject to the two-year time limit. Or the point of the machine was that it doesn't do anything, and by putting Minerva in it, she was creating a trap to lure the gods in to fight her specifically so she could get one of their heads in the struggle? There has to be some kind of reason because why would they keep Mimir alive to build something when his thing is he builds things? But he says the machine does nothing. So I think it was part of a show. Whether the show was just to get rid of Minerva or the show was to cause the fight or if she was engineering her own death or maybe she was gonna, she was banking on them capturing her and wasn't anticipating... Persephone just going rogue and destroying her? I don't know. Minerva could have easily taken Amaratsu's head at any point with or without that machine. I think that's half... Yeah. Because they trusted Minerva. But... But then it kind of seems like this ball now... Maybe they have to be in balance. Maybe it has to be two... Well, no, because she was trying to take Sackman's head. I was going to say maybe it has to be two sky gods and two underworld gods. Because she has Lucifer, Inanna, and Terra. 
But then Sacrament would have been a third Sky God. But we... Okay, so you're saying that Minerva at the whole time was Anaki controlling that old woman. Because we see very clearly that Anaki, without Minerva being there, kills those three. Yeah, also she writes the letter. So maybe she's not just something that's being controlled by Minerva. I think when Anaki got killed, I think part of her essence went into Minerva. Or maybe she's something else. Like, Minerva is Anaki and... The old woman is some other god? Like, maybe she's like Woden and Baphomet, like she was using a different name? But that would explain why the darkness was targeting her, specifically. Because she was the one who was actively trying to stop them. Right. So, yeah, that makes sense. That explains that. That's a mis- that mystery solved. And then Anaki was working with David Blaine... Blake. Blake. <laughs> Maybe also working with David Blake. Who knows what that guy's <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah, we don't know what's going to happen next <laughs> issue. Um, but Woden was not really aware of Minerva. I don't think so he was. He, didn't know, he does not know. I don't think anyone knows that Minerva and Anaki are melded together at this point. Well, she could have been speaking metaphorically when she says, I am Anaki. Like, like what people perceive Anaki as being, which is this like... This, this person guiding the pantheon and working behind the scenes against the darkness is actually Minerva. And she doesn't mean she's literally Anaki. Like, they could be separate entities. They could just use Amaratsu's head. She's, I think the heads need to be alive. Oh, click them off. Okay, yeah. Which means she's probably going to go after Dionysus because there's a nice alive head that won't fight her just hanging out in the hospital. Well, at this point, she doesn't really have many choices. Because Mimir doesn't have a head at this point. But he is a head. So like, Where I, is it? My prediction is he will sacrifice himself by being the last head to stop the darkness. Unless David took his head and is protecting it to keep him. I think that's the idea, right? Like, he, when he says, I'll never let her get you, you're my boy. He's specifically preventing her. He's, like, part of his deal, I think, with her was, you can't use my son's head. So then it just leaves Ball... Well, no, there's Baphomet, there's the Morrigan. There's Ball, Baphomet, the Morrigan, and Laura. And Laura. But and, she's and maybe not part of the Pantheon, so she might not count. Well, same thing with Erder. They may not be part of the Pantheon. Oh, well, yeah. But, I mean... Who knows? I mean, she was supposed to be the last one. And then she, they, she made Persephone. And then she was like, ah, oh, you're the Destroyer. And we've already got that thing where when she tried to use her powers on the darkness, it made them stronger. Mm-hmm. Which I was speculating might be a deal with all the gods, but it could be exclusive to Persephone. But isn't that a really a sign of a really good story that mm. like you're kind of like, what's gonna happen next? And you're kind of like Yeah. But I think it's clear that Cassandra and Lara, both as Urdu and Persephone and as themselves, they're starting to come to an understanding about each other, which I think is important. Do you think the letter that Anaki... Yes, that is true. Do you think the letter that Anaki wrote was to Minerva? Do you remember... Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. I do. I mean, that makes the most sense at this point. And I think it also explains why, naturally, Minerva fell under the guidance of Ball. Because Ball has... he See, Ball is weird because he's had a relationship with Anaki for the longest. But he is not being used like Woden is clearly being used by her. Well, I think he's being used in that she plays off of his, like, his desire to, like, be a hero and a protector. Like, she's using him in a much more, like, just emotionally manipulative, or was using him in a much more just, like, emotionally manipulative way. She was just taking advantage of his nature 
to get him to do the things that she wanted him to. The other thing is, did she, did the darkness kill his dad or did Anarchy and or Minerva kill his dad in order to give him motivation to make him easier to manipulate? At this point, I'd say yes. Like, they, essentially, it seems like her, and they worked to basically give Ball a superhero origin because a superhero is easy to control. Yeah, I think so. And I think that's part of her killing Persephone's family backfired, but she was probably doing the same thing. Yeah. Well, no, I think she was trying to make get Persephone on the board and then immediately remove her. And that backfired because Baphomet and Inanna showed up. But also, I think we also have the possibility that Baphomet could be the reluctant hero. Oh, yeah. I think that's been been established. Um, what else was I going to say? Yeah. So, yeah, there's a lot of crazy shit happening. Also, it makes sense with Minerva because Minerva is supposed to be like a goddess of wisdom and like, and war. Like the idea is that she is like the noble, like counterpart to Mars, who is the like brutal god of war. It still kind of confuses me as to how these gods are chosen. But I think a lot of it's going to be clarified because the next couple of issues that come out are... A lot of like the historical part about yeah. the, you know, it's not about the current occurrence or what do they call recurrence? Yeah, it's, it's about looking the more and more like she just picks them, and like I think we're leading up to the reveal that it's like if we go back to this idea that this is like a metaphor for like art and creativity and shit like that. It's like pretty much anybody can be a god. There's no special qualification, and essentially, Anarchy and Minerva are like. They're like a stand-in for, like, record labels and shit. They're like the capitalist gatekeepers that provide select people with the means for w- through which they can express themselves and, like, make money and a living off of their, like, essential nature and their creative impulses. But in a fair system, anyone could do that. Yeah, because I think, like, John is a maker. Like, it's yeah. not clear what he makes, but he considers himself a maker. And then, like, Amaratsu is, like, a social influencer. She yeah. doesn't really make... The only thing that she makes is, like, her own image as she sells. Mm-hmm. And, like, well, Ball's kind of, like, the same thing. He doesn't really produce anything, but he's kind of, like... Yeah, but he says cool shit, and he does dope things, and that's enough. <laughs> but I, that's what I'm saying. But I think it's, like, the idea that, like, these... He's not like the reincarnation of Ball or whatever. She's just the he's just the guy she picked to be Ball. And anybody, if they had, should have been, could have been able to be Ball. But she's the one who's controlling access. So you know. So you can you can be yeah because that explains a lot because the problems that the Morgan have are the same problems but God magnified. Yeah. That the person who personifies the morgan has she had a lot of problems with like this fear of being left and this sort of mm-hmm. controlling relationship that she had with her boyfriend before he became baphomet i think the god transformation sort of highlighted those flaws in her yeah and i feel like she is using her powers to control to enhance the parts that she wants to enhance and to repress the parts like Gentle Annie, that she doesn't want to come out. Yeah. So I think, like, 
I think they chose Laura specifically to be Persephone because the idea was like, well, Persephone slash the Destroyer or whatever is going to show up and fuck things up. So I'll just make this other annoying person who's fucking with my plans be Persephone and then I can just kill them both at once and be unchallenged. But I think Persephone also exemplifies this sort of like rapid fandom which is like implied like her desire to be close to the pantheon you saw that like with her attraction to lucifer Mm -hmm. and then lucifer sort of fed that because lucifer was like a narcissist Mm -hmm. and then now like a lot of what she does is like her base impulses but with the power of a god yeah 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 exactly uh also, like, within this metaphor, right, like, David Blake is, like, all the shittiest version of, like, a stage parent. Oh, yeah, definitely. He's, like, fucking, he's, like, uh, fucking Britney Spears' dad. Like, that's what, he's he, like what that, he becomes. like, dance mom's lady. Yeah, well, I think the idea Like, is... even after her daughter was, like, I don't want to be a dancer, like, John was mm. she still wanted to be involved so she created her own like reality empire that's just about her mama June or whatever her name yeah. is but it's like I think like we are introduced to him right as this like one not just an expert on the pantheon but like a specifically like controlling and gatekeeping version of an expert and I think the idea was like this is probably like a dude who grew up wanting to be in the recurrence was like born in the wrong generation and now he sees this opportunity to, to clamp onto this thing he wants. And if it requires him f- fucking over his own son, he doesn't care because he's that fucking selfish. Well, yeah, he's like also an example of a really awful super fan. Yeah. So, but I mean, we saw that kind of a. Now that we know that Woden is David, when we look back at the other issues, we see like this sort of Woden ish behavior from him. Yeah. Like the way that he treated Cassandra and. Laura at the conference before yeah. the recurrence started. And then how he was kind of like, I'll help you, Cassandra. But he was still being like, a, you know, like misogynist about it. Yeah. And it reframes like when he tells her about the Imperial phase, like it reframes that as him like fucking with her and like cast. And now he's like make, trying to sow doubt in her mind about the other gods to, I think, in effect, to isolate her so she needs Woden more. Yeah, and then he's like, yeah, so I can help you with this machine. Like, he he knew he didn't know what that machine meant, and he could have, yeah. I, does this make, I, I liked Woden a lot as a character. I mean, he's, I'm not endorsing his behavior. He was a horrible person. He is a horrible person. But I liked him a lot as, like, a villainous figure. Uh, I think this makes him an even better villain. Like, he's so awful now. Like, this one reveal makes him so fucking vile. But also then you realize that he's like a master game player because he was playing the role of Woden so perfectly. Well, I think he was playing the role of David Blake and he just is Woden. Like the real guy is the like that shitty dude. Well, I think so because if you like look at the issue where he talks about his son and his wife, his wife like they show the picture of this like perfect family, but then the wife is gone. Mm-hmm. And then you you realize that, like, he's implying that his son had a lot of problems, but then also at the same time trying to pretend like he's covering up the fact that his son had a lot of Seems problems. Seems like his son had a lot of problems that he caused. Yes, exactly. 
Yeah, it's also like, I really like this bit of characterization where it's like, we're introduced to David Blake in that flashback to the previous um, Ragnarok, mm-hmm. where it was like a conference and he's shitty to Laura and Inanna. And then he shows back up with the new one and he's like, hi, I'm sorry, like I was being a dick and I'm cool now. And it's like, oh, it's like character development. But what's actually happened is he's taken his real shitty personality and siloed it off into the Woden persona. And he's made the David Blake personality become this nice guy persona that helps him be the shitty Woden personality. But then also he must be really good at it if he fooled Cassandra. Yeah, well, he's, yeah. he And there's also lots of instances where she goes directly from having a conversation with one of them to having a conversation with the other one. Like, imagine how fucking furious that character, everything we know about that character, imagine how mad she is now <laughs> about, like, all the bad stuff, but also just the fact that he tricked her. Yeah, and then obviously when she takes off his son's head and realizes he's not there, yeah, then she realizes there's a lot of crazy shit going down, which I think means that, like, other than the issues that deal with the past pantheons, mm-hmm. the action has to move pretty quickly for the rest of the series. Yeah, well, we know there's only one head left. So we only really... We get two character deaths in this volume, right? Right. No, three. Because we get Amaterasu, Dionysus, essentially. He's brain dead. So like, there's a possibility he could come back. And Sakmat, who's... The most dead, because she's missing the top half of her head. Uh, so, like, all we need is one more character death, and whatever Minerva's trying to do is complete. But I think it it was kind of implied with the first three deaths that Anki was targeting specific gods that she wanted their heads. Well, yeah, and she was trying to cover it, right? So now Minerva is kind of limited in, like... Whose head she can take next. Yeah, but she's also got way less room to plot. Like, taking Lucifer's head is the end result of this long, complicated plot to create confusion and chaos around Lucifer with the assassination attempt and the killing of the judge and all of this stuff. Uh, Like, she's trying to... She goes through all this work to, like, drive class doubt over Lucifer's character and drive her away from the rest of the pantheon before taking her head. And then Inanna's death comes at the end result of this long plan of manipulating and pushing Baphomet so she has a patsy for taking the head. And Tara is the, she uses the cover of the, like, the fake, like, assisted suicide thing. And so it's like, she, everybody's on edge. She has way less room to, like, push and move people around outside of just, like, causing fights to happen and then taking advantage of those. She doesn't have a lot of room to plot anymore. She also doesn't have that other piece on the board of like the other body that she can use to do stuff. I think also it shows that she's not as skilled as Anaki. So if she is now Anaki, she is not because she wasn't skilled enough in her abilities because Ball was training her, but also she wasn't skilled enough in her abilities to get Sakmet's head. Yeah, she misses. Like, and that's the thing that Lucifer is like needling her about right before the reveal of all the heads. Yeah. Alright. Do we have anything else to say about this volume? This was was a wild one. Yeah, it really is. What did, do you have the name of the next volume? Because I for, totally forgot to look it up. So for next month is October. We are gonna do volume seven of the Wicked and Divine, obviously, but before that, we are gonna do a novel, a novella. Or whatever. I don't know what to call this. 
because it's it's October. It's the spookiest month of the year. We usually do a spooky theme. Yeah. Uh, at the request of Vince from the Nerdy Neighbors podcast, we're doing a Goosebumps book. We're going to read Say Cheese and Die by R.L. Stein. Well, this is also Nate's grade school secret love because he was an advanced reader and was not allowed to read Goosebumps because it was above his reading level. It was below level. my reading level. Below your reading level. Yeah, we talked about this in a previous episode. So I would read them in secret. I would go to the library and like read them there and and stuff like that. It's not like you were like mad. It was just like you would not buy me the Goosebumps books if I asked for them. And also you weren't allowed to use them for book reports. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Volume 7 is called Mothering Invention. Okay, cool. And it's 34 to 39. So, presumably we're going to get a lot of stuff about Mirmir. Yeah, because looking at this publication list, Volume 8 is called Old is the New, and it has four previous occurrence stories, 455 AD, 1373, 1831, and 1923. It also imprises something called the Christmas Annual and the Funnies. Okay. So that's kind of implying that it might be like an interlude. Yeah, I think that's the idea. I I mean, a lot of stories do that, like the big flashback before the finale. And so I think that that's kind of like what we're going to get. And then then volume nine is the last volume. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, so next month uh, for October, we're going to read Say Cheese and Die. I believe it is the fourth Goosebumps book. It is. It's also, I think... Um, it was reprinted as cl- in classic Goosebumps, but I don't know what the number is on that. Uh, it's the one about the haunted camera, uh, and that's by R.L. Stein. And so we'll, that'll be fun. We'll talk about some background and stuff too. Uh, and then we're going to read uh, Volume Seven of the Wicked and Divine Mothering Invention, and that'll be our Halloween episode. Yeah, well, Halloween episode will be the the Goosebumps, the Goosebumps one. Uh, yeah. So last year we had a murderous. Pumpkinhead. True. That book was great, by the way. If anybody hasn't checked out Dark Harvest, that one's really fun. And then this Halloween we'll have... Wow, this will be our third Halloween. Yeah, yeah. Because we did did, uh, Hellraiser for the first one. Right. We did the Hellmound Heart. And then we did Dark Harvest, and now we're going to do Say Cheese and Die. So, keeping it it creepy for October. I mean, there's no end of horror stuff for us to cover. We're never going to run out of, of uh, October delights. But also, I was thinking about this. There's a lot of stories that deal with haunted cameras or horror photographs. Well, yeah. I mean, you go back to that idea of like, oh, the, the camera will steer your soul and stuff. Or the idea that it, it's like a thing that captures a moment in time. Well, this will be for the episode. But, like, there is something we don't think about it a lot. But, like, if you think about it in first principles, there's something kind of unsettling about the very idea of a photograph. Yeah, and I think sort of and photographs are, are even now, like, with this whole, like, social media culture, like, photographs and things like Instagram and kind of are very important to the pop culture. So, yeah, and there's lots of room now to tell stories involving photographs and cameras and horror that link it to the horror of like the surveillance state and stuff uh but yeah like i mean if you think about it like what is a photograph except for a physicalized memory and what is a ghost except for a physicalized memory they're in essence the same thing uh tune in for more galaxy brain takes like that on the next episode (laughs) 
Uh, spoiler alert, stay tuned. All right. <laughs> 